0: When you think of the following organizational names, what is the common connection between them? Let me give you a few. The Supreme Court of Canada. The Superior Court of Justice. The Correctional Service of Canada. What do these three organizations all have in common? Why do they exist? Why were they instituted? In our great land. These three institutions are joined together because they exist for the purpose of justice. Justice is an important characteristic in all civilizations. But have you ever considered what makes something just or unjust? Further to this, have you ever asked yourself, where does the concept of justice actually come from? Does it come from human legislators? We know it can't because human legislators change their minds from generation to generation, from country to country. So what is the eternal, enduring basis of justice? Justice, we know, is about ultimately getting that which is just. And the word just means that which is morally equitable or fair. So no matter how you slice it, justice is actually a moral concept. Justice is a moral concept. And morals are not arrived at by popular votes. And morals are not arrived at by popularity contests or human legislation. Morals are eternal in nature. They come from an uncaused cause. They come from the ultimate source of righteousness and justice. And morals, then, have a foundation or a basis. And if we don't acknowledge this, that morals have a foundation or a basis to them, what we end up doing, and we see this all the time in our own culture and country, is we start talking in circles. We become inconsistent in the writing and application of our laws. The moral virtues of countries change from generation to generation, or it seems nowadays more like every quarter of a generation or so they're changing back and forth. But what we need to understand, again, is that justice is actually a moral concept. Now, before we go any further, I want to remind you of what our Charter of Rights and Freedom says in the Dominion of Canada. The preamble to this document says, whereas Canada was founded upon the principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law, and then it goes on to lay out fundamental freedoms and rights and so forth. Now, what's fascinating about this is that in a country that claims to be secular and that claims that its laws, its legislation are humanistically contrived, in other words, contrived or a result of voting or democratic processes or what we happen to think in our generation is right or wrong, the charter corrects that thinking. And the charter tells us that our forebears understood that law is impossible without an acknowledgement of the supremacy of God. And by the way, that God was not some nebulous God with some nebulous name. That was the Judeo-Christian God of the Bible. Our forebears knew that t- knew what tyranny was, was about. They had come from countries that were marked by tyranny, or at least from countries who had a history of tyranny, who had a history of injustice. Our forebears understood that and acknowledged then that law and God cannot exist apart from one another. There is no law apart from justice, and there is no justice apart from God. I'll say that again. There is no law apart from justice, and there is no justice apart from God. Now, secular-minded people, that is, those that deny the existence of God, The essential nature and characteristic of God, the purposes and plans of God for human nations or for, for nations, for human civilizations, secularists do their best to try to source justice in something other than God. So if you listen carefully to the quote unquote moral discussions, the social justice discussions, the legal discussions, of our day, secularists often try to found or ground or root justice in things like, well, what feels right, what, what experientially seems to work, or what these supposed experts think, or what science proves is best, or what sociologists agree upon. And they, they really seem, and pardon my language, they seem hell-bent on denying the supremacy of God and the fact that God, in fact, is the foundation for justice. They're just hell-bent on denying that. And the consequence is that they end up chasing their tails. They end up with divided opinions, and they end up shooting at an ever-moving target. So justice today looks different than justice 10 years ago. And right and wrong today has been adjusted from what right and wrong was Five years ago, and there's this ever-moving target of what is right and wrong, what is just and what is unjust, because secularists refuse to acknowledge any eternal foundation or basis for justice. Now, justice, interestingly, is a concept, an ancient concept, that predates Canada by thousands of years. It was spoken of over and over again by the biblical prophets, even long before the incarnation of Jesus or the advent of the church. The prophets were teaching people about the need for justice and the source of justice and what the application of justice looked like. Justice is found over 125 times in the English Standard Version of the Bible, translated from a few different Hebrew and Greek words. But over and over and over again, the Bible speaks of that which is just or calls God's people to stand for justice. And one of the questions I would like for you to be thinking about is, do you understand what biblical justice actually is? And when you go out into the spheres of influence that mark your life, the the academy, the workplace, the public square, do you act justly towards your neighbor? Do you advocate for justice? Do you speak out against injustice? If we're going to desecularize Christianity... And embrace a sacred worldview, we must come to terms with a biblical view of justice. Secular views of justice say the way to fix injustice in our society is just throw more money on it. Throw more money at it. You hear this in the news news. In political campaigns, there's an issue. There's something that's not equitable taking place. There's a disadvantaged people group. Or there's a rise in crime. Or a rise in child abuse. Or children coming out of school without the capacity to read. And we're like, that's a justice issue. How do we fix that? We'll just throw some more money at it. Or we will impose fines upon people who break the rules, or will take more people to court, or will police people's behavior, will try to change the way they act. But what's the underlying failure in this approach? The underlying failure is a failure to acknowledge the underlying cause of injustice. One of the biggest cultural lies that those of us that grew up in the West have been taught is the lie of cultural progress. We've been taught since the time we're very little that humanity is actually progressing. We use this language all the time. We're we're progressing. We're, We're a better people than we were a thousand years ago. And a 1,000 years ago, they were a better people than people 3,000 years before that. Now, it's true that we've progressed in terms of technology. It's true that we've progressed in terms of ingenuity. It's true that there's been progress in certain structures within society. But folks, we have not progressed in terms of morals. We have not progressed in terms of morals. That's a cultural lie. We are not a more morally civilized culture than we were a thousand years ago, or two thousand years ago, or three thousand years ago. That's a lie. If it was true that we were progressing in a substantive way, why would it be that in a typical year in Canada, these are recent statistics. Police officers recorded 2 million criminal code violations in our country. That includes last year about 4,000 homicides, just shy of 4,000 homicides in our country last year. 10,000 recorded cases in Ontario alone of sexual assault. That's progress. No. That's a cultural lie. We have not progressed morally. And the reason why we have not progressed morally is because of sin. And because we do not progress morally because of our sin, our justice is not getting better and better and better. And so the fix to the problem is not more time in jail, better education, more counseling, more therapy, no. What we need to understand is that injustice's root cause is sin. And therefore, injustice's cure is Christ. We need to understand this. This is part of a biblical understanding of justice and injustice. Why are there so many abused people in our world today? Why are there so many that live in poverty and disadvantaged Circumstances because of human sin. The cause of sin and the cure is Jesus Christ. The Old Testament prophets taught us this decades before Jesus walked the face of the earth. In Isaiah chapter one, verses sixteen and seventeen, Isaiah says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before your eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Now, if you look at the language of that text, it's moral language. It's moral language. We have the word evil there. The solution to injustice assumes human evil. Evil is part and parcel of broken humanity which is only remedied and corrected in Christ. And the, the result or the the uh, advice to overcome this moral impurity. It's all moral. It must be morally pursued. Look at the language of the text again. Words like wash, remove, learn, seek, correct, bring, plead. These are moral words. The prophet admonishes the people of God in the face of great oppression to turn their eyes to the God of infinite justice, to understand that the problem is a sin issue. It's not an educational issue. It's not a financial inequity issue. It's not a political issue. Injustice is a sin issue. Now, in this text, there is reference to the fatherless and the widow. And this is common if you've read the Old Testament prophets, where whenever they're talking about justice, they often point to two people classes or people groups or groups within society that tend to be the most likely to be oppressed. And the one group is the orphan. The child whose father has died in war or who has abandoned him or her. The orphan. Not an adult, but a child who's disadvantaged because they don't have a provider. They don't have a spiritual overseer. The other group that typifies injustice is the widow. And there would have been a lot of widows in a culture where men typically went out to war. The casualties would have been pretty high. The widow, who didn't have the capacity necessarily to bring in the kind of income to provide for her children. So there's other groups, of course, that can be disadvantaged. But these two groups typify those that tend to be victimized by injustice. So the prophet calls the people of God to make moral choices, to correct the immorality of injustice in ancient culture. And so we learn that human sin is the cause of injustice. So then the question is, well, how do we fix that? How do we treat that? How do we remedy that? Well, before I introduce you to let yet another passage in the text. Let's talk for a moment about wounds, injuries. So suppose that I cut my arm open and there's blood coming out and I put my hand on it and I apply pressure and eventually the bleeding stops. What would you say is the next step for me to take? to maximize the healing of my new wound? Would it be to apply a Band-Aid? No. Why would that not be a good idea? It wouldn't be a good idea because if there's debris in the wound, bacteria in the wound, there's the potential for infection in the wound. And so you don't just slap a Band-Aid on a laceration. You apply antiseptic. You want to kill off the bacteria that could infect your body. And then the Band-Aid goes on. I want to use this illustration of how secularists versus biblical thinkers approach the issue of injustice. The secularist says there's a problem. There's a wound. So they put a Band-Aid on it. They cover it with fines. Or they form special interest groups to lobby against it. Or they try to shame people into change. Or they rewrite the curriculum in our public schools. And again, what these things do is they put a band-aid over the wound, but they don't deal with the potential for infection. What the word of God helps us to understand is while there is room and latitude for changes within societal structures in response to oppression and injustice, We need to deal with the infection of sin, first and foremost. We need to acknowledge that there's something in us that needs to be transformed and remedied because we ourselves are contributing not only to the injustice of others, but also to the injustice that is often levied against us. And so Band-Aid solutions include social programming, and again, shaming and handouts and pity. And special interest groups, but the remedy is actually God. He must be acknowledged in every and any society that is successful at mitigating injustice as the ultimate source of justice. Early on in our Bible, in the Torah, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, the Word of God says about God, the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. You know what that tells us? The character of God is the source of justice. And in fact, what's interesting is even when God permitted his people to install justice, Kings and rulers. The primary purpose of those kings and rulers were not to create a great economy. The primary purpose of those kings and rulers were to reflect the justice of God over the people they ruled and governed. An example of this is in Second Chronicles, chapter nine, verse eight. We're speaking of the king. It says, "Blessed be the Lord your God, who was delighted in you and set you on His throne." As king for the Lord, your God. Because your God loved Israel and would establish them forever, he made you king over them. Why did he make you king over them? Before I go any further, let me ask, why did God put you in a position of leadership in society or in your family or in your culture or in your business? Here's what it says. That you may execute justice and righteousness Righteous rulers are a blessing to the people that they lead. They're a blessing to the people they lead. Sadly, history is littered with multiple examples of unrighteous rulers who instead of looking for equity and justice and fairness, moral equality for the people under them, looked out for themselves and themselves only and abused their power and abused their offices. But the point we can draw from this is that when we speak of justice, we must always point ourselves back to the God who is the source of justice. And this text speaks in the Deuteronomy text of the just ways of the Lord. It says, for all of his ways are justice. What does that mean? It means that his ways are upright. And they're they're upright in an unbending way. They don't bend. God, God doesn't change. He doesn't contort. He's not twisted when society changes or when there's great pressure or great denial of his existence. God is upright in justice. It means that he is unbent. He is straightforwardly righteous. The text says he is without iniquity. I don't know if you remember seeing, those of you that are a little, little bit younger may not, but I don't know if you remember seeing the, the catastrophic pile of rubble and debris in New York when the World Trade Centers were attacked, attacked and collapsed. Devastating moment in human history. Thousands of people died instantly. But if you look at some of the pictures, you'll see these, these giant steel I-beams rising out of the rubble. And they're all twisted and they're bent and contorted and broken. Now, when you look at the catastrophe and the size of those beams, you might think, well, that's kind of expected. But what if you saw those beams the day they arrived on the truck to build the World Trade Centers? You'd say, man, that thing looks like indestructible. I mean, they're huge. They're made of steel. The shape of them is made to hold... To hold great weight. I mean, no one could ever like bend that or break that in half. And indeed they were strong. They were strong enough to hold up these skyscrapers. But they weren't unbendable. Under the right amount of pressure and destruction. They bent and contorted. Lost their integrity. All of us have a breaking point. All human courts have a breaking point. All kings have a breaking point. All societal structures have a breaking point. God is unbendable. He's unbreakable. His justice never changes. He's without iniquity. And therefore, any human legislation, any law, any attempt at bringing about greater justice or responding to injustice, if God is not the foundation of that, they will fail, and that's why they always have failed. That's why we have not progressed morally as a nation or as a global nation for that matter. Now, when it comes to the church, the church is often far too silent, I believe, when it comes to speaking out against injustice. And the reason for that, I would argue, is because we sort of live our lives in our minds with sort of like a two-columned chart. And in one column, we put public life and politics. And in the other column, we put God and the church and the work of the church. And there is a very bold line in our minds drawn between the two. And we understand that God must be central to the activity of God's people gathered. But we seem to feel increasingly comfortable with the idea that God is largely absent from society at large, from political structures, from educational institutions. We think that's normal. And we think that's functional. And we think that's acceptable. It's not. Because this is an impossible paradigm to live in. It's impossible. If God is only relegated to the second column. Now we understand, yeah, the church isn't the state. And the state isn't the church. We understand that. But if God is absent from the state, there will be no justice. Because there's no foundation for it. There's no basis for it. If God is not in politics, you end up with injustice either in the immediate or the long term. And it doesn't take very long. There's no true righteous politics apart from justice. There's no just governance apart from God. And we are on good grounds to argue that theologically... But we're also on good good grounds to argue that in the public sphere because our charter acknowledges that. Our forebears understood the vital need for an immovable God to be acknowledged in order for a society to be ruled by law and justice. And so in response to this, the people of God, you know what we must do and we are called to do? not stay in our column over here and just hunker down in our churches because after all, there's a separation of church and state. That's an improper application drawn from that truth. But what we must do is we must pray for and advocate for justice. We must pray for it and advocate for it. I want to take you to the New Testament now and I want to read for you One of the parabolic teachings of Jesus found in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. Here's what it says. Luke 18, 1 to 8. And he told them a parable, this is Jesus, to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Pray for what? Not lose heart? Like what were the circumstances? So here's the parable now. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected him. The biblical reader should be like, "Uh uh-oh, major caution flag here. A judge? An arbiter of justice? Justice is rooted in the character of God? A judge that neither feared God nor respected man? Okay, this is a problem. This is a problem. So look at how this judge acts. And there was a widow. Remember I said the widow often typifies the victim of injustice. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Now, we don't know what she was experiencing. Maybe someone was coming in and stealing her possessions, abusing her children, taking her property. We don't know, and we don't need to know because the point is apply it to whatever injustice you might see. Starving children, people who are stealing from the government by taking money that should be allotted to people who can't work when they can work. That's injustice. Orphans being tossed aside, babies being killed in the womb. Unjust wars, you need to apply it to whatever the circumstances are, and there will be many. So she comes to this judge and she's like, give me justice against my adversary. And then the text says, for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, think persistence here, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. It's like, okay, I'm fed up with hearing from you. And the Lord said, here's the lesson. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect? A reference to his chosen people. Like if an unjust judge ultimately gave justice because of the persistence of the widow, will not the righteous judge ultimately respond to the requests and prayers of his chosen people? It says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Let me offer five lessons. But our response to in perspective on justice that will be a blessing to us. The first one is this When we see injustice in our culture, in our country, in the world, the first thing we do is we pray. We pray and we hope for justice. And we do not relinquish our hope when we do not get it. And we do not stop praying when we have not been responded to. We do not stop praying when the official is silent. We do not stop praying when the officials are ignorant. We do not stop praying when the officials refuse to have dialogue, when we picket, when we protest, When we speak out against and we receive no response, we don't say, well, I guess they win, we lose. No. Like the widow, we persistently and we consistently continue in prayer and hopefulness. Number two, we acknowledge the reality that unjust judges exist, that in culture Since the beginning of time, there have been people that have put in positions of authority and officials that aren't necessarily just people. doesn't mean that none of them are. But some of them are not. And so we need to be careful while we are respectful and appreciative toward those who lead and guide nations and municipalities. Let's keep our antennas up. And let's acknowledge that there will be some who have no foundation, who have no grounding in true biblical justice. And in a country like ours, we're seeing that increasingly because fewer and fewer of our officials acknowledge the supremacy of God over our country. What do they acknowledge? Who yells the loudest? Who will vote them back in? So a little reality check. Let's not just assume... That if someone is in a position of jurisprudence, that they're necessarily marked by morals. Lesson number three, persistence. Persistence pays off. We need to be persistent. If we have to persist for a week, we'll persist for a week. If we have to persist for a lifetime, we will persist for a lifetime. But what the church mustn't do is bow the knee. Bend. Bend to the injustices of our culture and our generation. Fourth lesson, God responds speedily to the prayers of the elect. God responds to our prayers and petitions, even if unjust rulers may not be so responsive. And if you were to pit God as the ultimate divine eternal ruler, against any human ruler, who's more powerful? We know the answer to that. So while we can beseech and petition and picket against things like abortion or sexual slavery or these kinds of things in our culture, different forms of injustice, at the same time, we can have hope and confidence that God is alive and well and he's listening to the prayers of his people. The fourth lesson or the fifth lesson is highly personal and it's a question, will you trust him? Will you trust him? The final verse says, nevertheless when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith in you? Will you continue to be a man or woman of faith? Or will you have crumbled and buckled and bowed your knee because of your frustration and not receiving what you want never give up be tenacious be tenacious in your petitions to god and in your petitions to man don't tire don't grow weary of well doing don't assume the worst anticipate the best either in this life or in the life to come this is a biblical response to justice and injustice in our society. As we conclude, let me ask you these questions. What are some injustices you need to start praying about? What are some things that you're seeing in our culture, in our country, in our world that the people of God need to be beseeching God about? How can you act to correct them within your spheres of influence, within your power and opportunities? What can you say? Where can you go? What can you do to advocate for biblical justice in a world that often lacks it? In the end, know this, that the God of justice wins. But in the meantime, we don't just throw up our hands and hide out in our bedrooms and hope for the best. God is calling his people to be advocates for those that are victimized, for the proverbial widow, for the proverbial orphan, and to practice justice as an assembly of faith, as a necessary activity of God's people. May these words be a blessing to you as you seek to be an agent, a redemptive agent of justice and equity and righteousness in a world that so often lacks it.